Welcome to another episode of Nebraska Gems. With our in-depth interviews, we reveal the qualities that make the people that come from the good life who they are. In the stories you're about to hear, you'll get an understanding of why there is no place like Nebraska. And now, here's Tom Stevens. My next guest spent 36 years as the CEO of the Capital Humane Society. When he first showed up at the organization, it had almost no budget. Since then, they have tripled their number of employees. They have two locations, the Admission and Assessment Center and the Pylock Adoption Center. My guests worked on nearly 40 legislative bills that had to do with animal welfare, including one that made dogfighting and cockfighting felonies. He has since retired as the head of the Capital Humane Society, but you know him well, Bob Downey, my good friend for many years. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing great, Tom. And you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, how is retirement going for you? Well, it's, it's you know, the first, I've been retired almost two and a half years now. The first six months were a little rough from the standpoint of, I was typically up at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning and hitting bed maybe 11, 11.30 at night. And my days were just so packed with everything. And it was just pretty much go, go, go all the time. And then you wake up the day after you retire and you're feeling like I'm late for work and <laughs> so on and so forth. And it was, yeah. just, it was, it was a different lifestyle and the, it was an adjustment and it did take me about six months, but things are going great now. I do keep pretty busy. Uh, I'm teaching classes at a local gym here in Lincoln. I teach cycling classes, ab classes, weightlifting classes, circuit training classes. Uh, obviously, my wife, Sherry, has things that she likes me to do. We've got a couple of dogs to take <laughs> care of. And I, I serve on a couple of boards, Give Nebraska. And uh, Give Nebraska is a not-for-profit that raises funds for a little over 70 other not-for-profits across the state of Nebraska. And then I serve on the corporate board of the Better Business Bureau for Nebraska, South Dakota, Eastern Iowa, and the Kansas Plains. And uh, I sincerely believe in uh, the Better Business Bureau and uh, the ethics they they espouse uh, for business people and their relationship uh, with consumers. And I'm quite happy with what I'm doing now. You are a fitness junkie. I, I do want to go into that in just a bit. But <laughs> did you ever think, well, I'm going to retire and move to Florida? I mean, why, why stay in Lincoln? My wife uh, has a brother. My, my core family is all gone, unfortunately. Uh, my wife has family up in Omaha, and they are very important to her. It's her, her brother, his wife, and their daughter, and their daughter's son. So those are essentially the relatives we have. I've got three cousins that live out by Exeter, Nebraska, and it's nice to stay in touch with them. And uh, we just like Lincoln. Lincoln is a good place to live. And uh, I mean, the people are very kind. They're very friendly. When I was working at the Humane Society and we'd go out to dinner, people would see me on the street, that type of thing. They're just always stopping me and uh, thanking me for the work we do. Or they want to talk about the pet they adopted from the shelter and that type of thing. And I always really enjoyed that and appreciated that. And that still goes on today. I still have a lot of people right. sure. who stop me. They talk about the work I did at the shelter. 
we were out for drinks the other night and somebody unbeknownst to us paid for our drinks. <laughs> uh, Lincoln is just a good place and it's a hard place to be. Yeah, I'm guessing a lot of people don't even realize that you're retired now and have been since 2020. But I want I want to go into this because you mentioned in another interview at one time when you initially took the job at the Humane Society 39 years ago, you thought it was just a stopover job. What do you mean by that? What happened to make you stay longer? Well, at the time I uh, was living up in Belvoir, Nebraska, along with my wife, Sherry, and uh, uh, I was working for a company up there. And all of a sudden, uh, I was being asked to do some things that were illegal in the business world. And I had a quick conversation with an attorney here in Lincoln who was a longtime good friend of mine. And the advice that individual gave me was just get out of that place. Uh, if they don't care any more about you than to ask you to do what they're asking you to do, why would you even want to stay there? So I left. I was doing telemarketing at night, and I really had a need to get back to Lincoln. I was born and raised in Lincoln. My, my father retired from uh, the University of Nebraska. He was a professor of engineering and mechanics. And about a year before he retired, he started showing uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's. My mother, unfortunately, uh, prescription drug addict and was a very depressed individual. It all stemmed from the death of the youngest child in the family, my sister Barbara, in a car motorcycle accident. And my mother just was never the same, never recovered from it. And so I wanted to get back to Lincoln to try and help the folks as much as I could. And I answered a blind ad in the newspaper and they were soliciting for a director of a not-for-profit organization. So I sent off a letter of application and a resume and three months went by and I hadn't heard anything. And all of a sudden I get a telephone call uninvited to an interview and it ended up being Capital Humane Society and went through a couple of interviews and then a final interview in front of 33 people was, oh, selected, wow. was selected for the job. And I figured... The issues with my folks were going to take their toll uh, over t uh, a fairly short period of time, and but at least I would be there to help. And unfortunately, that was true. Uh, Dad did pass away from Alzheimer's, and then unfortunately, uh, my mother and my other sister were involved in a head-on car accident east of Lincoln on a county road, and uh, both. Uh, were killed in that accident, along with one person in the other car. That was two years into the job, and that was the time where I originally thought I would leave. But the the shelter was just back at that time. It was it was a real challenge. Uh, it was approaching insolvency uh, financially. It was a very different organization at the time. Uh, we were taking in upwards of. 10,000, sometimes just a little over 10,000 animals a year out of the Park Boulevard building. We didn't have the Pilot Pet Adoption Center at that time. And we had a total staff of 11 people. Uh, that included me. Wow. And it was just, it was, it was very difficult. And uh, it was, it was misery, so to speak. And obviously, under those conditions, and if you take a look at the shelter at the time I left, uh, we've got the two organizations. Uh, we've got a staff of 34 
full-time people at the time I left. And we were taking in anywhere from 6,400 to 6,700 animals a year versus 11 people and 10,000 animals a year. And obviously, uh, with the additional staff and uh, having put professional staff on their vet licensed veterinarians and licensed veterinary technicians and having facilities for them to work out of and having the facilities we had to work with and the money. Uh, the balance sheet uh, of the organization when I was hired uh, was approximately $260,000. And when you speak of a balance sheet and you say that the bottom line was $260,000, that's not all money. That's the building, that's vehicles, yeah. that's equipment, and that's money. Yeah. Uh, when I departed, the balance sheet was a little over $11 million. And uh, along with that, I had built uh, cash reserves, which were professionally managed and invested uh, with three different entities here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And those cash reserves were then creating income that actually went into the operations budget. That was key to being able to operate two facilities and have all of the additional staff that the organization could have because our revenues were coming from fees for services, uh, such as adoption fees and cremation fees, coming from revenue off of investments, from the contract that the organization does have with the city of Lincoln to provide housing facilities for the Lincoln Animal Control Program out of the health department. And then for all the fundraising activities the organization did. And so it was it was a drastic change, but it was it was it I looked at it two years in as a as a a challenge, an interesting challenge. Uh, brought a lot of stress over the years at times and so on and so forth. But yeah. I felt like when I left the organization with the help of good employees that I was able to attract along the way and good board members that we were able to add to the organization, I felt like it was just a 180 degree difference in what the organization was. And I'm glad it's, a, it's an amazing story. I mean, you're still your story sounds so much like John Chapo's of the, of the Lincoln Children's Zoo and you got there, there's no budget. You got there. You probably saw yourself in the first place as a teacher, kind of like your dad. And here's this stopover job at the Capital Humane Society. Your budget is $260,000 and now it's $11 million. You could have never foreseen that, right? Yeah, that's that wasn't the budget. Uh, that was actually the value, the bottom line on the financial the balance sheet of right. the organization. Yeah, back sure. in back when I first started, the annual budget was in the range of about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and that included paying the employees. <laughs> the annual budget was approximately two point three to two point four million dollars. Sure. So, how did that all happen in your mind? Because this organization that some board members at that time thought it wouldn't survive. Did you think it would survive? Uh, I thought it was going to be a challenge. And when I first got there, yes, I, I had questions as to whether it would survive or not, because uh, when it was closing in on payday, I'd wonder how how we can even pay employees this, this particular round. And it got dicey sometimes. And 
through the goodness of uh, the bank that we were working with at that time, payroll, so to speak, got floated uh, for a while. And that entity mm-hmm. probably could have gotten in some trouble for doing that. But you know, I'm not going to say who that was. But I, I, I will say the organization may well owe their survivalship to that particular entity. We had to start raising funds. I mean, they at the time I was hired, they, they thought a good fundraising year was $10,000. And that's a terrible fundraising year when you when the organization was <laughs> in and stuff. And uh, by the time I retired, we were sometimes raising fundraising as much as $650,000, a year in our budget, as well as the other sources of income. We, we started out with a donor base, and they were simply on the donor base, simply was on three-by-five file cards in a little flip box. <laughs> it wasn't computerization, but a three-by-five file card for a donor is wasn't a very good way. Just, uh, I, I think a right. lot of it had to do just by keeping your nose on the grindstone. The media mm-hmm. in this community, both the radio, uh, I worked with you, Tom, when you were at Broadcast House, you and Jill, and TV did wonders for me. Capital Humane Society at the time I was hired was not viewed positively by the media in Lincoln, Nebraska. And part of that was when there were troubles there, and there were a lot of troubles there at the time. And the media approached the organization to find out about those troubles. The organization wasn't necessarily inviting to them and sometimes just even would not talk to them. I recognized early on that the media could be real partners for the organization. And yes, early on in my career, I had to answer some difficult questions from media in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, over things that would happen at the shelter. But I think they began to respect the honesty that they got from me and the honest way that I would answer those questions. And they started inviting me in to promote the organization by taking pets for adoption on the TV to radio stations and newspaper. Big at that time, Lincoln Journal and the Lincoln Star. And uh, I owe a lot to the media in this community because it is they, in essence, who help me become as well-known in the community as I am. It is they, in essence, who help get more animals adopted from the organization. And it is they who helped us promote fundraising events and so on and so forth. And so that was a big, big part of it. And the more changes we were able to make, and as we were able to slowly increase the size of the staff, do different things like that, add additional programs, the higher quality of employee we were able to attract to the organization. And, and that certainly helped. And, you know, you spoke about the legislation stuff. Some of the legislation I worked on took a lot of time. And I was out of the building at the, at the legislature talking to senators and doing some lobbying and stuff like that. And I would have never been able to do that if there were not employees with Capital Humane Society that I could rely on and I could trust to do things the right way when I was not there. It really was a team effort in creating, changing 1984, what we became by 
June 30th on 2020, which was my final day with the organization. Right. Well, you totally revamped the image of the organization. And part of that, you had to become a media star. You had to become a radio guy (laughs) and a TV star and raise money for the organization. It used to be that when somebody wanted to adopt a pet, they went to their local pet store. There was a stigma attached to maybe getting a pet, a dog or a cat from the Capital Humane Society. That's completely changed, hasn't it? It has. Um, back in back when I first started in the field in the 80s, what you say about a stigma on shelter pets was absolutely how this country looked at shelter pets. If it's at the shelter, there must be something wrong with it. That isn't the case. You know, one of the things that those of us who were, that my peers, that I communicated with around the country when I worked in the field. One of the things that really irritated us were these ads that run on TV, these horrible looking animals that are destitute and missing eyes and so on and so forth. And uh, that just adds to that. And the truth of the matter is the overwhelming number of animals that come through shelters are perfectly fine. They're just homeless. Mm -hmm. Yes, some there's going to be adjustment periods where they go into new homes and some are going to need obedience training and so on and so forth, but they aren't in the horrible, horrible physical condition that is sometimes portrayed in advertising by some of uh, the national organizations. And I remember the first professional conference I ever went to that was put on by the Humane Society of the United States. You know, I was a newbie, so I didn't know anybody. So you just kind of keep your mouth shut. You pay attention to what's going on and you listen to people and you hear people complaining about how do we get people in our communities to pay attention to us? And then as I went to professional training, some of the conferences around the country by 2005, 2006, things had really changed by that point. And you start hearing some of the newer people uh, within the field saying, why do our communities pay so much attention to us? (laughs) Because the scrutiny was becoming much higher (laughs) on shelters and what shelters were accomplishing and so on and so forth. But that's a better way to have it than the way it was back in the 80s when I first entered the field. We love people paying attention to us. That was one of the dreams behind building the Pylock Pet Adoption Center. Uh, I wanted to create something so special that the facility itself would draw people, not necessarily the animals and stuff. And so just a lot of planning went into that. And obviously the fundraising uh, that was necessary to make that happen, but we we selected an architectural firm, uh, we selected a contractor, we traveled around the country to look at good shelters, and we were allowed to talk to their staff, and yeah. what do you like about your facility, what don't you like about your facility. We saw a lot of things that even generated new ideas that we hadn't seen uh, in facilities, and then that went mm-hmm. into the design and the building of the Pilot Pet Adoption Center. And that almost instantly made a huge impact on the adoptions for the organization. I think within the first six months, adoptions had increased about 45% over the first year, over the same time period from the previous year. And people do come and they marvel at that facility and what it looks like. And the design of it was totally done to make it comfortable for animals. 
I mean, obviously there are tough times when you, you have to obviously put an animal down and that, that must be very trying for you. But then there are those moments, you mentioned the adoption center and you see that special connection between a dog and a child or a cat and an adult or somebody who's older and needs that companionship. Those memories have to stick with you forever, right? Oh, they, they do. When I was Working there, I there were occasions where people would approach me and uh, talk to me when you know, I might be at the grocery store or I might be out shopping someplace and tell me that you don't know how the dog we adopted from you changed the dynamics of our family because we weren't that close of a family. But all of a sudden, bringing this pet into the family it gave us something to rally around, so to speak, as a family. And we all enjoyed the pet and we would talk about the pet. And we would all play with the pet. and We would laugh together because of what the pet was doing. Things like that. On several occasions, I had veterans who talked to me about how this particular pet has changed their life after coming back from overseas and the stresses they were going through from being in Afghanistan or Iraq or someplace like that and and the value that the pet they adopted from Capital Humane Society brought to their lives. That's not only Capital Humane Society, that's any shelter across the country or any rescue group uh, across the country. I quickly began to realize, Tom, that if I adopted a pet into somebody's home, you're not only probably improving that person's life, you may well be improving and making happier the life of maybe three, four, five, six other people that are associated with that one person that came to the shelter to adopt a pet. And I knew how many pets I had adopted during my career, how many pets Capital Humane Society really had adopted. I could probably multiply that by three, four, five times in relation to the number of people's lives that we had a positive effect on. Right. I know you're close with John Chapo of the Lincoln Children's Zoo, and you both appeared on our radio show from time to time, and you would bring an animal. We had the cool cat of the week. And I remember he, he had a story, John Chapo had a story one time early in his career where a DJ was frightened, deathly frightened by a snake that he had brought in. I remember one time the cat escaped in the studio and got up into the tiles and you had to leave without the cat. Uh, do you remember any other stories? The cat was retrieved. We could hear it meowing when we would do our breaks. The cat was retrieved and given back to the Capital Humane Society and later adopted. Do you have any other stories though like that? Well, you, you have a bad memory about your studio because that happened more than once, Tom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember the one that got up in the ceiling and I think several times the, the segment was called Cool Cats because it was cool radio and you were Mick yeah. Malibu with Jim. And, that, that's uh, right. I, that's right. I remember a couple of times cats got up underneath the counter where equipment was and so on and so yeah. forth. You couldn't get them yes. back underneath there and so I would have to leave to get back to work and I'd leave the carrier behind and later in the afternoon here would be Jill driving back down the uh, the Park Boulevard shelter to return the cat to us which was fun. Yeah. there's a lot of funny things that uh, have happened over the years I remember on KLKN TV I took a rabbit 
on there one time and I was sitting, we had stools that we were in at the time and I had the rabbit on my lap and we talked about some of the different kinds of pets besides just dogs and cats that came there. And this was a rabbit that was available for adoption. And by the time the segment was done, we were off camera and I stood up. I can't remember. Well, we never counted how many rabbit turds rolled off my lap. <laughs> As I said. A couple of good stories on 1011 happened over the years. I had this female golden retriever sitting on my lap and she was a little frightened of the of the just the environment that we were in and so she wouldn't get mm-hmm. off my lap. So I got this 65, 70 pound dog sitting on my lap and I'm doing an interview with Brad and we're talking and about halfway through the segment, all of a sudden my lap is getting real warm, Tom. You know <laughs> <laughs> There's a golden retriever emptying her bladder on my, <laughs> my lap. We had a four month old black lab puppy. He was on Brad Anderson's lap and he was getting a little wild on Brad's lap and I was talking away and all of a sudden puppy grabbed the the lavalier mic off of Brad's shirt and he swallowed it, started to swallow it. And of course it was a mic, so you got the wire there. And so Brad's all of a sudden on air, you hear this noise, it's... And on TV, you see Brad trying to pull the mic back out, and he did pull it back out. And we are both laughing so hard. The dog was fine. We were laughing so hard, we couldn't finish the segment. The last (laughs) minutes of the segment is just Brad and I sitting there with this lab, just laughing away. One other thing that happened on 1011 one time I went on, I had four kittens. It was one of the noon segments, and I was wearing a white dress shirt, and it was in the summer, so I didn't have a tire or suit coat on, and we're sitting there. I had two kittens and was kind of holding them up against my chest. Brad had two kittens, and all of a sudden, one of the kittens I was holding scratched across my chest, and I didn't know it, but... I got a little cut across my chest and it started bleeding. So I've got this red spot all of a sudden on my white shirt and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time we're done, the size of a silver dollar, I was fine. It was just a scratch, but people started calling into the station to find out if I was okay (laughs) because getting bit or something on air. And so it was, there's a lot of, the media, as I say, was just so great to work with. And there are things I miss about working at Capital Humane Society and uh, working with the media is one of the things I absolutely miss the most. Well, one of the things that you did over the years, of course, we talked about all the legislative bills, ending dog fighting and cock fighting. How big of a problem was that? How hard was it to get past that legislation? Well, I, it was very difficult to, to get past. And actually, that was the first piece of legislation I ever worked on, Tom. At the time, dogfighting and cockfighting were illegal in the state of Nebraska, but they were misdemeanor offenses that carried a penalty of $25. I was contacted by an investigator who worked for the Humane Society of the United States. He called me, we had a discussion, and then he sent me some follow-up materials. And what he sent me were 
some underground publications related to dogfighting, and there were people from the state of Nebraska in those publications. And so I got to know a couple of investigators with the state patrol, and actually one of those investigators, previous to me getting to know them, had been and had attended a cockfight out close to Grand Island in a barn. If I recall right, I think he said there were about 20 to 24 people there and all kinds of betting going on and drugs involved, and that's not uncommon. The other investigator and I ultimately were able to make contact with an individual who lived in southeast Nebraska, but was a school teacher, special ed teacher in Geneva, Nebraska, who wanted to buy a, a dog from him that would take care of my neighbor's dogs who kept coming in my yard. The approach was that we had heard, I had heard from a relative down in the Ozarks that he bred fighting dogs, trained fighting dogs. We were able to meet him face to face and he was recorded with a hidden microphone and some things that were said during that meeting that really raised some question marks about this guy. And of course, he was advertising in these journals. And so I went to, at that time, State Senator Don Wesley and uh, talked to him about these types of activities and uh, showed him these magazines. I was permitted to tell him what we had done with the two investigators and so on and so forth. And Don and his staff agreed to sponsor a bill which would make dogfighting, cockfighting, and bear baiting illegal activities in the state of Nebraska and punishable as felonies in the state of Nebraska. Of course, there were legislative hearings and so on and so forth. And we had people come in from Humane Society of the United States, American Humane Association. I testified. The state patrol testified. And there was never any opposition testimony uh, to it. But the mail that would come in to the legislature afterwards Doctors, lawyers, professional people, non-professional people saying, oh, this is a bunch of hogwash. We don't need this law. So none of this stuff goes on in the state of Nebraska. Blah, 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 blah. Well, it took three years to get that through. And I, I have great gratitude to Don Wesley for having carried that bill for me for three years, but we finally got it through. Shortly after that had gotten through the state legislature, the the person we had met face to face to attempt to buy a dog from moved to Missouri. And years later, that individual came up into Nebraska with a couple of fighting pit bulls to fight in an organized fight north of Columbus. And actually, the fight was busted. He ended up doing federal time for that, and other people were punished uh, for that, too. But it it remains a problem in the United States. Up until 2014, there were still states in this country where cockfighting was not illegal. And Louisiana was finally the 50th state to pass laws felonizing cockfighting. I don't know if you've seen in the media just a few weeks back, there was a bust of a cockfight up north of Grand Island, where I believe it was 10 people who were arrested, birds were seized, cash was seized that was being bet on, and the paraphernalia that is used in cockfighting, the blades that are taped or attached to the spurs of roosters so that they literally slice each other up when they're fighting. These blades attached to them were seized. And it is, it is a problem 
uh, and it continues to be a problem across the United States and even in other countries and stuff, but at least the laws are there uh, that can be used to punish people for engaging in these activities and treating animals the way they are treated. These animals lose their lives through activities like this, and that's just that's just wrong. And maybe with these laws in place across the country, and there is actually a federal law now about going across state lines to do these types of activities, maybe it makes people think twice about even getting involved in something like that. But there always will be people who do that, but it can be dealt with from a legal standpoint. We'll be right back to Nebraska Gems after this. For all of your concrete needs, call Kramer Concrete at 402-560-0670. Do you have a cracked driveway or sidewalk? Are you in need of an egress window or an awesome-looking new patio with stamped concrete? If so, call Tim Kramer at 402-560-0670 to get a free estimate. With over 20 years of experience, the Kramer Concrete staff specializes in concrete replacement, egress windows, and concrete patio designs. Kramer Concrete is the low-cost solution to all of your concrete problems. Call Tim today at 402-560-0670. Thank you for listening to another edition of Nebraska Gems. We hope you're enjoying the episode. Don't forget to check out our latest feature, Quick Gems, where our guests share a few shorter stories that we think you'll find entertaining. You can find those and all of our episodes at NebraskaGems.com. Every Sunday evening from 5 to 7 on 93.7 The Ticket and theticketfm.com. Tune in for the Husker Rewind with myself, Mike Melby, and my co-host, Tom Stevens. We'll have all of the latest on the Huskers, plus other happenings going on in the sports world. That's the Husker Rewind. Sunday evenings from 5 to 7 on 93.7 The Ticket. And now back to this episode of Nebraska Gems. I know you're an animal lover. You always have been. You've uh, owned boxers. Only boxers? How many different types of dogs have you owned? We've only owned boxers during our life. Why is that? Well, in college, I had a neighbor. I went to school at UNL, lived out in Meadow Lane. That's where my parents lived. And our next door neighbor actually owned a gas station, had one down on 27th and Vine and another one at 10th and J. They were called Save Oil Company. They are now U-Stops or the one on 10th and J is, the one on 27th and Vine no longer exists. And uh, they were open 24 hours a day. They drew their business in by selling gas and cashing payroll checks. Of course, you know, the time I went to school, the late 60s and early 70s, you always got a payroll check. (laughs) They would cash payroll checks. The station at 27th and Vine was in, unfortunately, in a a troubled neighborhood uh, in Lincoln at that time. And I think that neighborhood still has its challenges, but that does not mean that everybody who lives in that neighborhood in town yeah. are bad people. There are plenty of good people mm-hmm. that live in every neighborhood. But when you worked the graveyard shift, which was midnight to eight o'clock in the morning, you were by yourself. People would come in in groups, three, four people all in the same car, and they'd get you busy out on drive, filling their gas tank and washing their windows and checking the oil and putting air in the tires and stuff. And everybody else would go inside and they'd be stealing stuff. Well, I had a friend that worked there also, and he had two boxers, a male and a female, and wish I remembered their names, (laughs) but I don't. But they were very nice dogs, but they were very highly conditioned dogs and very muscular dogs. And they had an intimidating appearance to them. And when he worked a graveyard shift, he would take those dogs with him. Those dogs would follow him around on the drive out in front of the station and stuff. And sometimes he'd leave them inside. 
But people, when those dogs were with him, people would not get out of their cars just because yeah. of their appearance. And yeah. he let me start taking those dogs because I had some I had some shifts in there where I had some strange stuff happen. I take those dogs to work and they they'd obey me. They'd follow me around on the drive. And I had the same experience. Nobody any longer would get out of their cars. When nobody's there, I'm playing with the dogs and it helps keep you awake. <laughs> and uh, just <laughs> with them. and I, I, that's how I fell in love with that particular breed. And Sherry and I have had 12 boxers since we got married. We were actually on boxer number 11 and 12 at this time, Gizmo and Zelda. It's a breed that is somewhat challenging because of the genetic health issues they have. They're very prone yeah. to cancer. Uh, they're prone to heart issues. Uh, so they're not a long-lived breed. That can be difficult for people. It's difficult for us when we lose one of them. We've lost them as young as two years of age to heart complications and stuff. But we've also had boxers that had lived to be 12 years of age. That experience back when I was in college and, and working at that gas station, I fell in love with that breed. And that's what we've always had. You and John Chapo are longtime friends. You've had similar challenges. You've been in high profile positions at the same time for many, many years. Did you ever pick up the phone because you have similar challenges or had similar challenges and say, you wouldn't believe what went on today at the Capital Humane Society and vice versa, he calling you and you both work with animals and it, you're all about animal welfare. Did you find yourself helping each other at times? Oh, oh absolutely. And, you know, being a sounding board and uh, yeah, we're dealing with different types of animals. And when you're dealing with people and animals, it's very emotional. People are strongly tied to animals and sometimes people can be difficult to work with in relation to animals too. We would both pick up the phone and if we needed a little, if we just needed to vent a little bit about something that would happen, we could do that. Or we'd get, we got together for coffee frequently and we still, John and I and Scott Young from the food bank every once in a while get together and go out and have lunch together and just shoot the breeze. But yes, having people like that, that you can call upon, it's it's wonderful. I, I know when Scott first got hired by the food bank, we had lunch several times. He had all kinds of questions about working for a not-for-profit and working for a board and how do you do this? And they're just, they're both great, great people and they're friends and uh, they're the type of people that if they ever needed my help, all they have to do is pick up the phone and I'll be there and vice versa. I know if I ever needed their help, if I gave them a shout out, they would be there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're what my father would have always called salt of the earth people. Yeah, good, good people. At being called salt of the earth, that's a call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely in that category and you're kind of a local celebrity. I mean, we mentioned the fact that you've been on radio for so many years and TV for so many years. Do you enjoy that when people come up and say, hey, Bob, how you doing? And you have no idea who they, I mean, that's happened to me a little bit, just being in the radio business. You're much more visible than I am. Have you enjoyed that celebrity of sort? Oh, absolutely. And again, having been granted that level of celebrity by the media in Lincoln, it helps very, very much. It helped in fundraising. Oh, that's the guy on TV. You know, if you go into a business to ask for money, 
oh, that's the guy on TV. I'll at least listen. <laughs> I don't know if I'll give you money, but <laughs> right. I'll at least listen. <laughs> yeah, the strangers. Heartwarming. Uh, working in an animal shelter, especially an open admission shelter, it is stressful. It's stressful from everybody from top to bottom who is doing all the physical work inside the walls of those buildings and stuff. You know, you might have a very down day and you're at the grocery store that night or maybe I'm just at the gym lifting and somebody, oh, I saw that guy on TV today. I wonder if he'll talk <laughs> to me and so on and so forth. No, it was, uh, it was uplifting. And when you are having, we're having a bad day and somebody approached you to thank you for what you do, so on and so forth, they could turn your day around for you, uh, help you end your day on a very positive, on a very positive note. And even today, as I say, I, I still have people approach me and thank me for what I did or want to tell me about the pet they adopted from the shelter when I was still there and so on and so forth. They just, it makes me feel good. Uh, makes me feel like I, I did a good job. And at the same time, it tells me the pet, if they care that much to want to tell me what they want to tell me about that pet or the past pet that they got from the shelter, it sends me a signal that that animal ended up in a good place. Because if that animal did not mean a lot to that individual or to the family it was adopted into, they wouldn't be approaching me to talk to me. And so yeah. the, the other side of that is that when you're out to eat at a restaurant, you just, uh, you have to watch your behavior all the time. Yeah. No matter where you are. Sure. I was, I'm, and that that's still today because I don't want to be known as a jerk today. <laughs> if you're out in the public and you have been granted the privilege of having the notoriety that I was granted the privilege of having in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, you just have to be careful about your behavior and what you say all the time. If I sit at a table and I don't like my food and I chew the waiter out, people sat in two tables over. Oh, well, that guy's a bigger jerk. <laughs> that guy, I didn't think that guy was that right. kind of jerk. That, I always had to have in mind that the entity that would reflect on the most was Capital Humane Society itself as an organization. We mentioned that you probably had a lot of stressful days and you did have a lot of stressful days. It was a stressful job. And some days, you know, you had to see a, a favorite animal maybe pass on through abuse or, or it, it didn't end well. One of the ways that I've found I've, as I've gotten to know you over the years, is you probably relieved the stress in the gym. People may not know that Bob Downey is a workout machine. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen a guy ride a cycle as fast as you can for an hour or two at a time. Where did that come from? The fitness well, part of your I was that way before I ever got involved with the Humane Society. Uh, and you know, I was never a football or a basketball guy or anything like that in high school. You know, I was swimmer, track. Those are the kind of sports I always loved. And when I left, I engaged in those types of activities. And when I left high school, when I left the university, I had taken up the I was a runner. I had taken up the sport of racquetball and I got really, really good at racquetball. And I, I don't know if you remember the sports courts in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yes, I, I was a member there. I was a teaching pro there. I had a full-time job outside of there, but that's what I would do at nights. And uh, then I also got to play in tournaments representing them. And, and that was just, that was a dream job. That's how I met my wife. <laughs> Go into that story, how you met your wife. 
<laughs> well, when the club was first opened, I went over there one night after work uh, to do some practice by myself, practice some different shots and so on and so forth. And when I got there, one of my co-workers was outside laying sod in front of the building. I said, do you want some help? And he said, I'd love some help. And so I went inside and I found an old pair of tennis shorts that were in the lost and found there. I didn't want to mess up my clothes. And so I put those on, a pair of tennis shoes, and I went out. I didn't have a shirt on and I was uh, helping my friend put sod down and Sherry went walking past us and then she stopped, turned around and she said to me, are you working out for the Mr. Nebraska contest? Because <laughs> I was lifting weights a lot at that time too. And uh, it's like in the, ba- in the back of my head, I'm thinking, of, oh, when the opportunity arises, I got to ask her out. <laughs> and no, ultimately, I, I asked her out and we went out. And we had a nice time, but both of us were kind of coming off other relationships at the time too and it was probably about six months later before i asked her out again and then it was just us from then on well you're both lincolnites you went to lincoln northeast then lincoln east then the university of nebraska as we mentioned you thought you were going to be a teacher you ended up staying for many many years your dad was a teacher but you uh, ended up staying at the Capital Humane Society for many years. What has Sherry done all these years? Sherry, uh, after graduating from the university, she had a degree as a dietitian. Uh, she worked for a short period of time for UNL, the student union. Then she went to work for Lincoln General. And then I had the opportunity to go to Uh, Bellevue, Nebraska, to run Sports Courts of Bellevue when it opened. And so she followed me up there and she went to work for the Med Center up in Omaha. And then when we came back to Lincoln, she was able to catch on with the Veterans Administration in Lincoln. And she was there for about a year. Then the Lincoln Veterans Administration was downsized. So to keep a job within the VA system. She had to commute to Grand Island for about a year, which added a lot of time to her work week, but she kept her eyes open on opportunities at the VA in Omaha. And so she caught on there after about a year working for the Grand Island VA. And that's where she finished out her career. She had 29 years of service to the Veterans Administration, and uh, she specialized in diabetes education and did some work with veterans who had alcohol issues and uh, drug issues and, and things of that nature. I tell you what, you hear stories about government employees and they don't care and so on and so forth, but that's that's not all government employees. It's a, it's a long ways from what a lot of government employees are. And she cared greatly about her job. And I even recall times when there'd be a veteran that she was working with, and then all of a sudden they appear in the obituary section of the newspaper. And Sherry would cry over that because those were people she got to know. She was helping them. She was making a difference for them. And then all of a sudden they're gone and and they meant something to her. If you see a government employee who feels that connected to the people they're working with, they cry uh, over their loss. The government, the Veterans Administration picked the right dietitian when they picked Sherry for that job. 
Well, I think uh, the Capital Humane Society picked the right guy as well. Bob Downey, he was there for 36 years. Did you ever think about leaving the Capital Humane Society? I had a couple of opportunities to leave, but ultimately never did. I had two opportunities to go to work for the Humane Society of the United States, but decided against it. I had an opportunity to go to work in Corpus Christi, Texas for a Gulf Coast Humane Society, but decided not to. Even after I told them no, they kept calling me to try and get me to come down there, but (laughs) I stuck with it. The one I came closest to leaving, I had an opportunity to go to Tampa Bay to run the SPCA of Tampa Bay. The job had been offered and so on and so forth. And then at that time, the administrative staff consisted of four people. My fundraising person, my director of volunteers, my assistant director, and myself. All of a sudden, in somewhat rapid succession, and it wasn't because they were unhappy or anything, my director of fundraising, her husband, worked for State Farm, and he had the opportunity to go to Rapid City and have his own agency, and so he took it, so Sandy had to go with him. I told him she didn't have to, but she went with him. (laughs) And uh, then Uh uh, Charlene, my director of volunteers, at the time her husband went back to Boston to school uh, to work on his master's, and of course Charlene went with him. Then uh, my assistant director turned in her resignation to go to North Platte with her husband, who had quit his job in Lincoln and accepted a job uh, in North Platte. So all of a sudden, I got all three of these people leaving, three-fourths of the administrative staff, and I'm about to say, yes, I will go to Tampa Bay. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is going to look to a board, like, regardless of what I say, it's going to look like I orchestrated something, probably. And so I called the folks at Tampa Bay and uh, said, I can't come. And they moved on. And then all of a sudden, my assistant director, her husband, who was out there, decided he didn't like his job there. So he was coming back to Lincoln. And my assistant director wanted to know if she could have her job back because I hadn't filled it yet. And I said, yes, you can come back to the organization. (laughs) But all in all, kind of would have been fun to be in some place like Tampa Bay. Would I have had as much success in Tampa Bay as I have had in Lincoln, Nebraska? I don't know. I got over that. I don't regret having not gone to Tampa Bay, and I don't regret having stayed at Capital Humane Society. It allowed me to stay for a long, long period of time at one place, and that's pretty rare in this world anymore. It allowed me to accomplish a lot of things. We're grateful that you stayed, Bob, but I have a buddy that has a million-dollar home on the bay in St. Pete. Pretty nice. That is pretty nice. I think you would have liked it. I'm sure. Um, But we're glad that you you turned that job down and stayed in Lincoln for our sakes. This is our lightning round, Bob. This is where we just uh, throw a bunch of questions at you and you answer them as quickly. First thing that comes to your head, what was your childhood dream job? Lifeguard. Lifeguard. You were never a lifeguard? I was all through college. You mentioned you were a really good swimmer. I was a swimmer as well. I swam at Lincoln High. Did you swim on the high school swim team? I did not, but I did swim on summer teams uh, at the pool and stuff. And being a lifeguard, I certified. No, it was just those were some of the funnest summers of my life, working at the at the yeah. swimming pool and being a lifeguard. Which pool? Metal Lane. Uh, it was a, it's a Metal private Lane. neighborhood pool. 
but yeah. we had a swim team and uh, I was one of the coaches of the swim nice. team and we would get to the pool at about six o'clock in the morning and we'd leave the pool about 9 30 10 o'clock at night <laughs> it sounds like me I hit the Knowles pool at about 6 a.m for swim team and left about nine o'clock at night we had similar lives I think what's the best compliment you've ever received that compliment was from Jim Abel. And it was in relation to, I was asking Jim and Mary for a gift. And this was a in-person meeting, asking Jim and Mary for a gift and for the adoption center. At the time I showed Jim the original balance sheet of the organization when I was first hired and what it was at that time. If you know Jim Abel, you know Jim Abel's a smart, smart man. And you want Jim Abel, if you're in the business world, you want Jim Abel on your side and you want him to be your advisor. Absolutely. Because you will be successful. Jim Abel looked at the balance sheet and he said, this is an organization that is doing things right. Other not-for-profits would benefit from learning from Capital Humane Society. And then years down the road, same sort of meeting with the Abels again. And I showed Jim the updated financial statement. And Jim Abel just looked at me and he said, why are you doing this? You could have made a lot of money in the business world with this type of leadership, yeah. this type of development. Given who Jim Abel is, those were great, great compliments. That, that is a fantastic compliment. Of course, Jim Abel, probably the best businessman in this state that I can think of for sure. What's the best advice you ever received? The best advice I ever received was from my father. This was when I was in college and getting close to moving into the work world. What my father said to me is, if you ever go to work for somebody and you can't give them more than 100%, all you have just some of what you have is negative towards your employer. You need to move on. I took that to heart, especially the part about Sorry. 110%. Somebody gives you a job, you need to give them everything. And if you don't like the job or you don't like the environment, you need to move on. Are you a morning person or a night person? Both. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sleep. I still, even though... You know, I am retired. I always got up around 5.30, 6 o'clock and never got to bed till about 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. And I still, I don't set an alarm anymore. I still get up at that time. For a period of time, I was going to bed about 10, 10, 15, but now that's starting to move back more towards the 11, 11.30 time slot at the end. You know, I'm 72 and I'm, I'm blessed with good health. I'm blessed with a lot of energy. And my wife just shakes her head. Where do you get your energy from. It's just who I am as a person. Your job forced you to be an extrovert. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Today, in a, a mild extrovert, I can keep my mouth shut and keep out of other people's business when I need to. But I had to become an extrovert to work at Capital Humane Society in the position I was in. And I was not an extrovert at that time. So I had to learn and I had to push myself there and learn to speak in the public and not be bothered. People said about you if it was negative. Got time to listen to that. Got time to worry about it. Then everything in your world must be right. Otherwise, if everything in your world is not right, you better get busy on fixing those things in your world that aren't right. <laughs> Bob, if you could grab a drink with anyone in the world, who would it be? I'd love, even though he's a non-drinker, I would love to be able to go back and have a drink with my father as I am today and as he was 
as my father. Uh, the conversations would be in. Well, your your father was a very smart man. Obviously, he was he was an engineering teacher. Yes, he was a professor of engineering and mechanics at the university. And he, along with uh, one of his fellow professors, wrote several textbooks. Uh, individual's name was Jerry Smith. They uh, wrote several textbooks that were used at universities across the country about their specialties. My father was published in the Encyclopedia of Physics a number of times. There were defense contractors that tried to get my dad to leave the university and come to work for them. The Rand Corporation out of California wanted him to come out there and go to work for them. Brunswick Corporation, back in the days when they were a defense contractor, wanted him to come to work for them. He was just a smart, smart individual, and he sacrificed a lot. He was the breadwinner in the family, and we were fortunate to have a mother who could stay at home, raise the three children, and I think that made a difference in our lives. But I will tell you the ethics and the morals that my father passed along to me, they helped make me a success. Was he your hero? Absolutely. What do you do to relax, Bob? Well, I, I, I love bike riding, although I can't ride the kind of miles that I used to, you know, back in, in my best riding days, I'd after work, come home, take care of the dogs. Sherry would still be at work in Omaha or getting ready to hit the road to get back home. And I'd go out and ride 40, 50 miles just about every day on the bike. And then I'd come back and lift weights in the garage and I'd lift weights over at the gym. And uh, I just can't do that kind of mileage on a bicycle anymore. I can do it, but the price that I pay to do it <laughs> discourages me. And, I, and teaching at the gym, I love teaching at the gym. You meet a lot of nice people at the gym. The gym kind of becomes its own little community in of itself, and you make good friends there. And it's fun to help people learn to do things they didn't think they could do. And it's fun to help people improve their fitness levels. I don't know. I just I enjoy it. And having been around people and talking to people as much as I did with the work I did at Capital Humane Society, the gym's kind of important to me to be able to continue to talk to people and socialize with people and help yeah. people. And, How do you want to be remembered, Bob? I want to be remembered as uh, somebody who cared. And I think I am viewed that way. Uh, one of the things that people do say to me when they come up to me and talk to me today, people I don't know, they say, I, I really miss seeing you on TV and miss seeing you with the pets or hearing you on the radio. They say it's just, it's so different now. You mm -hmm. came across like you really cared about what you were doing. I, I am grateful that they perceived me as caring because I did care about what was going on there. I wouldn't have been there for the length of time that I did. I hope people will remember me as a hard, hard worker, as somebody who stuck to it, somebody who was very honest, very ethical, and did things the right way. I feel good about that. I definitely see you as a guy that cared and a guy that would pick up his own phone. Whenever we asked you to stop by the studio and bring a cool cat of the week, talk about an animal, talk about the Humane Society, you were there obviously promoting the business, but you helped us promote as well. It was a give and take and it was a great relationship and you did it for years and years, not only on 1011, but all the radio stations in Lincoln. And I've appreciated getting to know you and calling you my friend. 
Thanks, Bob. You're very welcome, Tom. Thank you so much. And thanks. Thank you personally for what you did when you were with Broadcast House, Mick Malibu, on Cool Cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, we'll see you down the road, Bob. Happy retirement. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Nebraska Gems. <laughs>